G'day everyone. I'll pray before we leave this wonderful passage. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that over this summer we've been able to dip into John's Gospel and see each of these signs that Jesus did. Uh, but more than that, we thank you that uh, those signs have done what you designed them to do, which is show us who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and more than that, why he came, which is to give us life. And so we pray that this greatest of the signs now will have that impact on us again. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've always enjoyed playing trivia games. Uh, when I was growing up, the board game our family would play was Trivial Pursuit. Uh, every summer holidays, we would have family challenges in Trivial Pursuit. Uh, my parents might listen to the podcast, so I shouldn't say that I won most of the time. But... Um, uh, we even, there was even a box of Trivial Pursuit cards sitting in the bathroom just for you to read as you were spending time in there. But anyway, uh, in, uh, in recent times, a few of us from church have actually gone to a couple of trivia nights and uh, one of my proudest achievements late last year, a group of us won the Star Wars trivia night at the uh, Cogra RSL Club. It was a great, there was no trophy, but uh, anyway, it was a great achievement. But to do well at uh, general trivia, you've got to have a team that covers all the areas. So you've got to have someone who covers geography. Uh, so, you know, you need to have someone who knows things like, what's the capital of Burkina Faso? Some of you are saying, I didn't even know Burkina Faso was a country. But What's the capital? Does, any, does no one know the capital of Burkina Faso? Imagine the poor Burkina Faso. Wagadougou. Wagadougou. There you go. Now you're equipped to win a trivia contest. No, you've got to have someone who knows modern music, I've found. Uh, I'm pretty good on the 70s, 80s and 90s, but I need someone to help me out with the... There's a missing period in my music when my kids were too young to care. I now know the stuff from when they're older, but there's just a missing period there. I need someone to help me with that. Uh, but the really... Every so often... They throw in a bit of Bible trivia, which is always a horrible moment for me. <laughs> because as soon as I ask a Bible trivia question, everyone goes, and if I get the Bible trivia question wrong, my credibility is shot. So uh, well, our passage today is actually a favourite in trivia quizzes. So the question when this passage comes up is, what is the shortest verse in the Bible? And uh, you've got to have both the reference and the words. Who's got the answer? I think that was John 11:35. Jesus wept. People, people are good on the Jesus wept, but they can't give the reference. You only get half a mark if you don't give the reference from experience. But there you go. As I say, you are now equipped to win the next trivia contest. Don't say I don't help you with practical things in my preaching. Uh, but actually, that verse is, is much more than, than help in a trivia contest, isn't it? Uh, that verse actually captures one half of why this chapter is, I think, so wonderful. As we've been looking at these, these miracles of Jesus in, in John's gospel, uh, John calls them signs because that's because they are showing us who Jesus is and why he came, like I prayed before. And all of the signs have been building up to this one. Uh, you see, after this, Jesus' ministry ends. His ministry of miracles and teaching ends and he sets his, his, his eyes to Jerusalem uh, and that's where he goes to his death. And so this is the last, but it's also the greatest of the signs. And so what it does is, in this one story, it shows us the two realities of Jesus. Like all the signs, it shows the glory of Jesus. The fact that Jesus has power over death. The fact that Jesus is the Son of God. But on the other hand, this story also shows us the humanity of Jesus. 
how he is the man who weeps by his friend's tomb. And it shows us how Jesus actually truly understands and knows what it is to be a human being. Uh, That's what makes this story so powerful, I think. So we really have saved the best to last in the summer series. So come with me. Have your Bibles open at chapter 11. You do want it open. It's a long story. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk us through the story uh, and draw out the implications as we go through. And I've broken it into four acts like a play. So, so come with me. Act one, I've called Jesus Disappoints. And this starts at verse one. So we meet these friends of Jesus. It says, Now a man was sick, Lazarus, from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, it's important. These people are not just randoms. These people are not like other people Jesus meets. They are close friends of Jesus. There are are all sorts of stories in the Gospels about Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And and so, if you think about it, put yourself in Mary and Martha's shoes. Your your brother is sick, and you know the guy who has been travelling around the country making blind people see and lame people walk. What do you do? You do exactly what they did. You think, well, if Jesus can cure blind people he's never met, surely he's going to come and fix Lazarus, his good friend. So you send him a message. But when Jesus gets the message, he does something surprising. Do you notice how he he doesn't rush there straight away? Look at verse 6. It says he stays where he is for two more whole days. And only then does he say, okay, let's go. Uh, So his disciples understandably get all confused. They already have a propensity sometimes for getting confused, but even more so here. And to understand that, you need to understand it was quite a radical thing for Jesus to go to Bethany because it's right near Jerusalem. It's less than a day's walk from Jerusalem. And the last time he was in Jerusalem, they decided to kill him uh, and they were going to kill him. So, So to go there is quite a radical thing for Jesus to do. So his disciples understandably get confused. Uh, And so you look at verses 6 to 16 there. They have this whole funny interchange with Jesus where Jesus tells them, Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they say, well, that's good. We don't have to go. Why on earth would would you go to this place where they want to kill you if he's just asleep? Jesus says, by asleep, I actually mean he's already dead. And then they say, well, then why do we need to go? If he's already dead, there's nothing we can do. Why go somewhere like that? And so this whole first section actually just raises this question, why did Jesus wait? Why did he wait? Why didn't he rush to his friend's bedside? If you heard that your closest friend was sick, you would, you'd drop everything, wouldn't you? You'd get in the car, you'd get to the, the, the hospital. And in fact, if you think about it, from what we know from other stories, Jesus could have actually healed him without even going there. There's other people where he wasn't even there and the people get there and they're already healed. Jesus could have healed him with a word. Uh, It's interesting, when Jesus finally gets there, that's the question that Martha, the sister, raises. Come down to verse 21. Do you notice that? Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Uh, That seems like a not so thinly veiled rebuke, doesn't it? She's clearly disappointed in Jesus. Why didn't you come quicker? You could have healed him. So why did Jesus delay? Well, Jesus gives us the answer back at verse 4. Look back at verse 4. It says, When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. See, Jesus actually had it all under control. He knew the end point of this and he knew there were bigger things at play here. 
This wasn't just about Lazarus. This was about people seeing the glory of God. Jesus had healed loads of people. He was known as a healer. He had healed loads of people. Raising someone from the dead, that's another level. This was going to be his greatest sign. So Jesus was waiting so that people would see this greatest sign and come to know who he is. Jump down to verse 15. Look at what Jesus says. He says, I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. See, the reason he waited is so that he could do this sign that would lead people to faith in him. This is just a little reminder that often, like Martha, we don't have the full picture. But God the Father and our Lord Jesus do have the full picture. Things happen and we sometimes throw our hands up in the air and say, what, what are you doing, God? We say, why are you letting this happen, God? Uh, we need to remember... What we actually learned in the book of Romans right at the end of last year, remember back in Romans chapter 8, how God is working for our eternal good, but more importantly, is working for his glory. Well, let's get back to the story. Take it to Act 2, and this is where Jesus comes to offer life. This is from verse 17, look there. It says, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now that is really important because it's making the point is no one can mistake this. Lazarus was dead. No one can doubt what was going on here. No one could say, oh, actually, he, he was just really sick. We hadn't realized we put him in the tomb, but then he woke up. Lazarus was dead. You know, I read a story about a town in Italy where they put a bell rope in a dead person's hand and leave them for a couple of days in this tower because then if they wake up, they can ring the bell and let everyone know. It was all a mistake. I'm not actually dead. That is not Lazarus. In fact, it's when they get to the tomb, Martha complains. She says, you, you can't go in there. He, he's decaying by now. The old King James Version says that she said, by this time he stinketh. Which, which, which I think just captures it much better than the modern English. Uh, so the point is, he's dead. Lazarus is dead. And so Martha comes to meet Jesus. Like I said before, she meets him with, with really a rebuke. Why didn't you come quicker? But do you notice she still hopes Jesus can do something? I don't think she actually knows what she wants Jesus to do. You know how sometimes we, we pray like that? Well, we don't actually know. We just want God to do something. She's, she is not anticipating Jesus raising her brother from the dead. You see that later in the story. But she hopes he can do something. Verse 22, she says, Even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And so Jesus offers her hope. Look at verse 23. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Now, Jesus is meaning something incredible when he says this. He's meaning, I am going to bring him out of the tomb today. I am going to bring that dead man that stinketh back to life. Jesus is making a massive claim. He is making a promise here. You are going to eat dinner with your brother who you buried tonight. But Martha, understandably, misses that. Because actually... Many other faithful Jews would have said exactly the same thing as Jesus said to her. Your brother will rise again, Martha. She thinks Jesus is talking about the judgment day. She thinks Jesus is talking about the end of time. Look at verse 24. Martha said, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You see, Martha is a faithful Jew. She knew the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel promises that, that on the last day, everyone will be raised from the dead, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting judgment. So it's like she's saying, I know that, Jesus. 
My other friends have told me that, Jesus. And in time, that might help me. But right now, my brother is dead and I'm devastated. But Jesus wants her to know that he is not talking about some vague future hope. Jesus is not talking about some distant day in the future. He wants her to know that resurrection life is much closer than she realised. In fact, it's standing right in front of her. And so Jesus says, I think maybe the most amazing thing he ever says. I think this is the most amazing thing Jesus ever says in verse 25. Uh, In fact, I I took a funeral on Tuesday for a wonderful Christian lady, uh, part of our Bexley congregation who went to be with the Lord. And I love the fact that in the Anglican funeral service, the first thing you say just about is John 11, 25. Look at it with me, because it captures the essence of everything Jesus offers. It says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, ever. Do you believe this? So Jesus said, I'm, I'm not offering you some vague hope that someday, somehow, God might raise people from the dead. I am saying, I am the one who has come to do it. He's saying, I am here to defeat death. I am here to offer you life beyond the grave, eternal life. And so he asked Martha, do you believe this? And she does, look at verse 27. says, yes, Lord, she told him, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. I actually don't think Martha has fully grasped what Jesus is saying. You see that in what follows. But she knows that even if she hasn't got all things sorted, even if she doesn't even know all the questions, she knows Jesus is the answer. It's like she's saying, I I believe you can do anything. I believe you are God's son. I believe you're the saviour. And if anyone is worth trusting, if anyone is worth following, if anyone is worth believing in, it's you. Now, we're going to come back to verse 25 and what it means for us later because it's so important. But I want to move on the story for now. Come with me to Act 3 that I've called Jesus Gets Ready for the Fight. And this is from verse 27. So Mary and Martha are both there with Jesus by this point, along with all the other mourners. Now, in that culture, people came from everywhere to loudly mourn. Uh, In fact, a lot of them were professional mourners. You paid people to come and help mourn to show just how much grief you had for the person you'd lost. And so at this point, there's people wailing, there's people moaning, and Mary throws herself at Jesus' feet in tears And she makes the same sort of comment as her sister. Lord, if you'd been here, you might have done something. So here is Jesus. He's got Mary in tears. He's got people wailing all over the countryside. And look at his response. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. Now, I want you to see the two parts of Jesus' response here. On the one hand, he weeps, like I alluded to before. Jesus is deeply moved when he looks and sees the tomb of his dear friend. He weeps when he sees the pain that his death has caused Mary and Martha. This is so important to grasp and so important to remember. Jesus is not some distant deity. Jesus understands our pain. He understands the reality of death. He understands what friendship is like. He understands loss. As it says in Hebrews, he is able to sympathise with us in our weakness. 
Because Jesus experienced the pain and the struggles and the trials of being human in a fallen, broken world, he understands what we go through. Do not ever think that Jesus does not get you. Don't ever think that Jesus does not understand you. There may be times where none of your Christian brothers understand what you're going through. There may be times where none of your Christian sisters understand your pain or, or, or your grief. But Jesus does. Don't ever forget that. Jesus wept. But there's also this other part to Jesus' reaction that I think shocks us and, and, and surprises us. Jesus is angry. When it says he was angry and deeply moved, the deeply moved doesn't mean he was angry and sad. The, the, the words deeply moved don't actually capture what, what the word is saying there. The word is more like he bristled, he fired up, he snorted. It's the word they use in, in the original language for what that, a horse does. You know when you see the horse go like that, sort of, I can't do it, but uh, you know what I mean. That's what Jesus did. Now, why is he so angry? Well, some people think he's angry at the mourners for their over-the-top, uh, you know, carrying on their fake mourning. Some people think he's actually angry at Mary and Martha for, for daring to question him and, and because they should have had more faith and known what he could do. I think it's more fundamental than that and I think it is more in his guts, if you like. He is angry at death. He is angry at the pain that death is causing his dearly loved friends. Because death is not natural. God made us, remember we looked at Genesis last year, Genesis 1 to 3. God made us to live forever with him. But when we sin, something unnatural occurred. Death entered the world. Death is not the natural end of life, as our world likes to tell us. Death is to be feared. Death is to be railed against. Don't buy the lie of our world that it's ever better for someone to die. No, it is never better. It is always better to live. Because when we die, we face the judgment of God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 will come up on the screen. Thanks, Miriam. It says, it is appointed for people to die once, and after this, judgment. See, our world lives in, in, in sort of, it, it tries to pretend death isn't real, and then it tries to make death nice. Death is awful. Death is awful. Unless we trust in Jesus, who has beaten death, and I'm going to come to that in a moment, death is to be feared. You can ignore death most of your life in our modern Western culture, but not when you stand at the tomb, not when you stand at the graveside of a dearly loved friend. And that is why Jesus was angry here, because death is the great enemy. Death is the enemy he's come to defeat. And here it is, staring him in the face. If you were ever bullied at school, if you ever had a nemesis at school, if you ever had that person who used to, to, to sort of push you around, you know that feeling you got when they walked in the room, how your, 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 your temperature rose up and your te chest tightened and, and you clenched your fists? That's Jesus here. He is walking into the face of his enemy, everything he hates, death and all the pain it leaves in his wake. Jesus is angry. And so that brings us to Act 4. Jesus smashes his enemy. Come with me to verse 38. Then Jesus, angry in himself again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. I think this is a great moment. I must admit, and it's probably because I've watched too many westerns, I imagine Jesus as Clint Eastwood in this scene. 
walking into the town to, to defeat. You know, and he hasn't said anything up to this point, and then he says, remove the stone, you know, <laughs> like, like that. Uh, but most of the people are probably thinking, is he crazy? He's gone too far. This is when Martha says, don't Jesus, he stinketh, you know. But, but they remove the stone, and then Jesus pauses. And he does something really interesting. Look at verse 41. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this, so they may believe you sent me. So Jesus didn't have to pray at this point. He could have healed Lazarus with a word. He could have healed Lazarus without a word. But he does this so that everyone knows this is God's work. So that everyone knows God is behind me. I'm not doing this in my own power. I'm not some great miracle worker. I am the son of God. So Jesus didn't want them to believe that he was a magician. He didn't want them to even just believe in him. He wanted them to know that God the Father was at work and God had sent him to give us life. So finally, Jesus shouts with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus walks out of the tomb. What a moment. And if you look at verse 45, we didn't read verse 45 before, so go to verse 45, if you look there, uh, it says, many people believed. Of course they did. If you saw a man who'd been dead four days walk out of the tomb, you think, of course they believed. But what's surprising is, if you look there, other people went and dobbed Jesus in and started plotting to have him killed. It's just a reminder that some people don't want to believe in Jesus. Some people, you can give them all the evidence in the world, but they do not want to believe in Jesus. Jesus even said it. He said, even if a man is raised from the dead, you won't believe. And that's what's going on here, because to believe would mean you have to worship him. To believe would mean your life would have to change and Jesus would have to become the centre of your life. But how wonderful. Many did believe. And of course, that's why Jesus did this. Remember John 20, 31. We've been looking at it right through this series. But these things are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But as great a sign as this is, raising a man from the dead, it is the greatest sign, but as great as it is, Lazarus is not still alive wandering around in Bethany. I've been to Bethany, it's got a different name now, an Arab name. I've been there, you don't find Lazarus sitting on a street corner sharing his story. Because 20 or 30 years later, we don't know, Lazarus died again and this time they buried him and he didn't come out. I do wonder if they might have put a guard on his tomb for a few days, just to be careful. But, but the problem of death was still there because this sign was only a sign. And it was pointing, because that's what signs do, it was pointing to the greater reality that Jesus talked about in that key verse I mentioned, verse 25. The sign was pointing to Jesus' own resurrection. When Jesus walked out of the tomb, he wasn't just showing us a sign. He wasn't just temporarily resuscitated. He was raised to live forever. Jesus was defeating death. And that is what Jesus promises to anyone who believes in him. In 1 Corinthians 15, it tells us Jesus is the first fruits of many who will be raised like him. That is the Christian hope. And nothing compares to that. Look at what Jesus said in verse 25 again. Look at it with me. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. A wise friend of mine once said to me, you can judge the value of a worldview or a philosophy 
by whether it offers anything at the gravesite. And it is so true. All the world views, all the other religions, they offer nothing at the gravesite. Only Jesus offers hope in death. I want to say to you today, if you don't trust in Jesus and follow him, believe in him today. Find life and hope that our world just does not offer. We'd love to help you come to know Jesus. We'd love to help you find life. Put on your feedback slip. You'd like to know more. Come and talk to me after church. But I want to say to you, Jesus is the only one who offers hope beyond this life. Jesus is the only one who offers true life. But for most of us here, we have come to know Christ. We've found life. We live with the certain hope of the resurrection. And I pray you know that wonderful hope. But then I want to say to all of us here, if we know the hope of the resurrection, it should show itself. See, it's, it is the hope of the resurrection that makes Christians different. It's the hope of the resurrection that is the distinguishing feature of what it is to be a Christian. It's the resurrection that should make Christians different to other people. See, it's the fact that we know that we have eternal life that liberates us not to care so much about this life. It liberates us from the anxieties of this world. It, it liberates us to live radical lives for Jesus in this life because we know we're living for eternity. As Paul says for him, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, if I die, what do I care? If I live, how good? I get to glorify Jesus. See, it's because of the resurrection that Christians throughout history have been willing to die rather than give up their faith. It's why we don't care what other people think of us. Tom and I before talked about being shy about the gospel. The resurrection is why we're not shy about the gospel. Because what does it matter what people in this life think of us when we have eternity with Christ to look forward to? At a more basic level, this is why Christians don't live for this world. The hope of the resurrection is why we want to store up treasures in heaven, not here on earth. The hope of the resurrection is why we devote ourselves to the service of Jesus in this life, rather than building up our own security and building up our own name and building up our own kingdom. This is why Christians prioritise Jesus now. See, the resurrection is the centre of our faith. The resurrection is what drives us as Christians and the resurrection is what liberates us to live for what really matters, eternal life with our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful moment. But more than this moment, we thank you for the wonderful truth that Christ is risen and that because of that, we too will be raised to live with him forever. There are people here who have not yet put their faith in Christ. We pray that they might do that soon and find life in Jesus. But for all of us here who know and love the Lord Jesus, we pray that our hope in the resurrection might just show itself every day in the way we live in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.